Bridge, Deck, are we okay to lift the first ice party onto the ice? Deck Bridge, you're okay, Deck. Yeah, okay, Ben. I'm Richard Hollingham. Welcome to the Planet Earth podcast from 80 degrees north. That's um, 1,000 kilometres from the North Pole. I am clinging on to a swinging conical basket which is being winched off the deck of the British Antarctic survey ship James Clark Ross onto the sea ice. And here scientists have set up a temporary ice station. I say temporary because this flow almost certainly won't be here in a few weeks' time. Once we've safely landed... I'll be talking to the scientist leading this expedition, Ray Leakey from the Scottish Association for Marine Science, who's with me in the basket. Hi, Ray. Hello. Hello. Keep holding on. I'll also be chatting to other researchers here about their work on the ice, the dangers of polar bears, and getting an insight into the joys of diving in freezing waters. Well, Ray, we, we've landed on the ice and just walked uh, a few well, hundred metres or so from the ship. And you, you look out across the landscape here, and I, I can't get enough of it. It's fragmented, interlocking pancakes of ice, really, and a jumble of broken ice where these flows meet. It's very white, it's very cold. But why is this region so important to study? Well, the poles, they do seem desolate, they do seem very remote and out of sight and out of mind from, to those of us from warmer climates, but they're important for several reasons. Firstly, they're the part of the planet where the heat escapes, where it cools down. It's responsible for keeping the planet nice and cool, atmosphere, ocean currents bring hot, warm air up here, and, which then cools down. So they're important as a sort of global thermostat. They're also important in terms of capturing carbon from the atmosphere as well. As sea ice forms and melts, it pumps carbon dioxide from the atmosphere down into the seabed, where it's locked away for long periods of time. So it's an important part of the carbon cycle. And they are biologically rich areas of the world. We have fisheries up here, we have a whole series of interesting charismatic animals and plants, and uh, it's a habitat for many of the local people as well. So, so we shouldn't ignore the poles, they're enormously important. Can you give me a sense then of the science you're trying to, to do here? I mean, where we are on the ice, you've got the ship behind us, locked in the, the ice flow, and then various sampling stations with experiments drilled through mostly through the ice. The main concern of our science here is to look at the global carbon cycle and and the role the Arctic plays in the global carbon cycle. Now it does look very desolate here but really there's there's a lot happening in terms of gas exchange with the ocean and it involves both the physics, the chemistry and the biology. And that's what's amazing really is the biology here. I mean I expected the big stuff, the seals, the bears, but there are birds. There are birds on a pool of water not so far from where we are. And then there's algae and and microorganisms living in and under the ice. Well I spoke to Helen Atkinson from the British Antarctic Survey as she collected brine. We've just pulled a large section of sea ice out of a hole that we're making in order for the divers to get through the ice. What I'm trying to do is sample the brine that runs through the sea ice in a network of brine channels as I'm interested in the emission of um, iodine compounds by sea ice algae. So we've just dug this hole in the sea ice, pulled out a big section of the ice and put it into a bucket, all very high tech, and now the brine is draining from the ice. The brine's really porous, it's really warm, so all the brine is draining from the ice. I'll collect it and then measure the emission of compounds by the phytoplankton in it. It's quite beautiful, isn't it, looking at this slab of ice. I don't know, it's about, what, 30 centimetres 
square and then about about a metre long. Yeah. In fact, Simon did pretty well to pull that out, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's draining down. The stuff that's collecting, the liquid that's collecting in this plastic tub you've got, yeah. like a sort of washing-up bowl-type mm-hmm. tub, that's quite concentrated in salt, is it? It's more concentrated than seawater, but at the moment, because the ice is melting, the brine in the brine channels is becoming more diluted. So the salinity of this is about 35 parts per thousand, which is about typical of seawater, but it's much more salty than the ice. And there are things living in there, are there? Yes, there are. Small photosynthetic organisms called diatoms. If you look at that piece of ice over there, you can see the brown layer at the bottom, and that's due to the phytoplankton that live in the brine channels. So this is really quite an ecosystem here. Even though apparently on the top it's just completely barren wilderness, there is quite a lot of life under it. Yes, it is. In fact, the phytoplankton that live in the brine channels are right at the bottom of the food chain. So the phytoplankton get eaten by the krill, and then the krill get eaten by the walrus or the seals, and then the seals get eaten by the polar bears. So it all forms part of the food chain. Why are you collecting this brine that's draining down through this ice as we're talking? There is a high concentration of iodine monoxide, IO, measured above the sea ice of the Southern Ocean, whereas we don't see as much IO above the sea ice in the Arctic. So the theory goes that the phytoplankton that live in sea ice emit these iodine compounds. They work their way up through the ice, get released from the surface. Once the iodine compounds are in the atmosphere, they get broken down by the sun's radiation. They then react with ozone to form IO. So the whole reason for doing studies like this is to understand the mechanisms that deplete ozone in the atmosphere. So really, this is where it comes from in the first place. That's what you're looking at. Yes, this is the source of the iodine compounds. Well, Ray microorganisms they're really your thing aren't they yes we're all used to big animals and plants and they're very charismatic they have interesting behaviors whether it be a polar bear a seal or indeed ourselves but really the the planet is run it's it's driven by microorganisms they're the things that really count they're the things that transport energy they're the things that transport carbon and nitrogen and nutrients they really provide all our ecosystem services and there are billions of them again hostile desolate environment doesn't seem to be much around but under our feet now we have literally billions of microorganisms living under the ice in the seawater on the seabed they're all working for us indeed there are some around in the air around us as well so they keep our planet alive they keep it the sort of environment that we like to live in and what if you lost the ice how would that change and how would that affect the planet if we talk about the biology first of all In biological terms, sea ice forms an important habitat for the animals and plants that live on it, such as polar bears and seals. If we lose the sea ice, then they either have to change, adapt their habitat, or they will die. The sea ice also forms a lid on the ocean. Whilst it's here during the winter, it shuts out light. The small microbial plants in the sea, the phytoplankton, they need light in order to grow. Now, in the summer, when the ice retreats, those plants can start growing and of course as we lose more ice from the Arctic then you're getting greater expanses of open water and that potentially can lead to greater microbial plant growth, greater growth of these phytoplankton. However it's not quite as simple as that because the place and the time of microbial growth is particularly important. If you get the timing wrong then the sort of microbes you get growing may not be quite the type that some of the organisms are used to. You could draw the analogy with weeds if you plant your garden at the wrong time weeds come along so you'll get other types of microbes and the animals that then live on them they are not around at the right time i suppose worst case scenario we lose the ice entirely in summer then effectively if you look at the globe the oceans are joined up what what impact would that have yes at the moment the sea ice 
does tend to form a sort of barrier between both the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean. It doesn't stop all currents passing between the two oceans, but it does tend to sort of, in a sense, settle the oceanography. It tends to prevent things passing across. We've now seen reductions in summer sea ice in 2007, 2008, 2009. We've also seen various organisms cross from the Pacific over to the Atlantic. These have included a small diatom, the first time it's been observed over in the Atlantic. It's come from the Pacific and it's the first time for 800,000 years. We also recently saw a whale appear in the Mediterranean, which we think came from the Pacific. Now, these events are somewhat unusual and they really indicate that we're seeing a greater flow of ocean currents and organisms between the the ocean basins. We can't talk about the biology of this place without mentioning polar bears. Uh, We've seen several from the ship, I can't remember, I've lost count a little bit now, including one that was gnawing on the mooring ropes at, at one point. And they're beautiful animals, aren't they? You see them coming up to the ship, and they're not white, that surprised me. They're, they're almost magnolia in colour, and they, they sort of ripple across, across the landscape. But you're not a big fan. Uh, they are beautiful creatures, but they are also a bit of a nuisance when we're working out here. As soon as a polar bear appears we have to clear the ice of people. Um, we have polar bear watchers on the ships. They're keeping a keen eye out. We have guns on, on board. But the last thing we want to do is lose any of our scientists to a polar bear. Losing the instruments is bad enough. They will come and they'll sniff around and they'll, they'll poke around their noses and things. They're great to look at, but when you're trying to do serious science on the ice, they are a bit of a nuisance. It is their home, though. We can't really complain. We're intruding on their home and they have every right to be here. I just wish they'd come at times when we don't happen to be out on the ice working. Well, let's hear from another scientist on the ice now, Ronnie Glud, also from the Scottish Association for Marine Science. He set up a new type of sensor in a small rectangular hole in the ice behind me to measure oxygen concentration through and underneath the ice. The idea is to calculate the exchange of carbon dioxide, CO2, between the air, ice and water. What we have found out in the recent year is that The sea ice as such worked as a globally important gas pump of CO2 from the atmosphere into the deep ocean. And that's new knowledge. It wasn't known before and it's not included in our current climate models. And what we want to find out is, of course, how efficient is it and what environmental parameters determine how efficient it is. But that it's efficient is is certain from the measurements we have already now. It's really on the scale of what we call the biological pump, which has been studied for decades, which is that algae fix CO2 in the water and it sinks with the algae down to the deep ocean. This process of sea ice pump, we think, is of similar importance. If we relate this to to global warming, the ice has then got two roles. One, to reflect the sunlight back off. Mm -hmm. And another, because of the ice, more carbon dioxide is getting absorbed. More carbon dioxide is leaving the atmosphere. The ice extent is a prime regulator of how much CO2 is taken up by the deep ocean ultimately. It's not a lid on the ocean that sort of hinder exchange of CO2. It's actually a pump that's driving CO2 from the atmosphere into the deep ocean. So that's one central role. And with the receding ice cover, less and less ice in the Arctic, that pump is gradually being shut down. And that means that the amount of CO2 accumulation in the atmosphere is probably going to increase as the sea ice is retreating. So the, the less ice, the less carbon dioxide is absorbed. And you've also got this other factor of the less ice, less sunlight's getting reflected back. Yeah, uh, and which is, again, that would be sort of a, what you would call a positive feedback, is that the globe as such will heat faster because we don't have the reflection of sun 
that's reflective on white surfaces in general and the sea ice. So to sum up then, what's the the impact of losing the ice is, is more significant than perhaps we first imagined? Yeah, what our current studies and our model studies, theoretical studies show is that as the ice is receding, the climate change will be accelerated because the ice actually works partly as it's reflecting energy back out into the atmosphere or into the um, space, but also that it it pumps down CO2. And if you take these two things out of the equation, we expect that the heating will accelerate. Just for you, though, personally, working in this sort of environment, and you've done a lot of polar science, it's pretty incredible, isn't it? It's gorgeous. It's beautiful to be up here, and uh, it's a special job, and uh, I certainly don't complain about that this is a part of my job. Ronnie Glad. Well, Ray, Ray, it does strike me there a lot of processes here, biological, physical processes, that you don't really understand. Yes, Ronnie's described one process. There are many others. Uh, We have physicists here who are measuring the ocean currents beneath us. We have people looking at gases of different types and sea ice. We've got, of course, people like myself looking at the microbiology. It all forms a sort of tapestry, a whole jigsaw of interlocking pieces, all affecting each other. And in a sense, we need a sort of systems approach to to bring these these aspects together and understand them as a whole. So each particular package of science is an individual part, but it really forms part of a greater whole. And in an expedition like this, we're trying, at least in this particular time and place, to understand that the primary factors which which are at play in this particular part of the ocean. Well, many of the experiments here use instruments to investigate what's going on under the ice, but there's only so much you can do with machines. Go. Two square holes have been cut into the ice, just a few metres away from where we're standing, to allow divers to collect samples from the clear, still and very cold water. Two people can dive at once, with people on the surface to pay out the rope and keep a check on the time. I spoke to Heiko Moosen from the University of Glasgow after he emerged from his 30-minute dive. As I went in, my whole face was just burning because it was so cold. Um, and then I got used to it, so I was trying to catch algae with uh, Tesco food bags, which have a zip- ziplock. It's really hard because as you breathe out, the bubbles travel along the bottom of the ice and disturb the algae. And every move you make disturbs the algae, so you really try and sort of hold your breath and then slowly slip the bag over the algae. Um, I've learned a couple of things. Next time I do this, I'm going to open the bags before I dive, because opening bags with cold hands and gloves underwater is really hard. How much algae is there at the whole bottom of the ice? Is that, is that covered in patches of algae? Uh, it looks like an inverted landscape. So you've got valleys and hills and sort of in the inverted valleys, you've got little fist-sized clumps of algae. And they're, yeah, they, they're buoyant and they're, they're all over the place. And then it's really light. So there's a lot of light coming through the, through the ice. Um, yeah, it's just amazing. It's your birthday today, your 30th birthday. Was this what you would like to do on your birthday anybody i know any diver i know would love to do this on their 30th birthday i'm i'm quite glad and thankful that i got to do this today and i presume now you need to get warm i'm actually okay at the moment Uh, my fingers were hurting earlier they're fine again i'm i'm happy and totally content go again go again go again And we'll put some videos shot by the divers up on the Planet Earth online website. You'll also find photos, including some of those polar bears and the daily blog from the expedition.
To keep things as safe as possible, only eight people are allowed to work on the ice at once. But don't think the other scientists on board are sitting around twiddling their thumbs. I've never seen a more hard-working lot. The ship's laboratories have people working night and day. To get a snapshot of the science that's going on, I asked a few of them to explain their work in 30 seconds. Hi, my name is Heather Bowman and I'm a lecturer from the University of Oxford. I study phytoplankton, which are the microscopic plants that live in the ocean. And on this cruise, we'll be studying Arctic phytoplankton. And they're quite unusual in that they have 24 hours of darkness in the winter and are subject to 24 hours of light in the summer. And we're just trying to find out their photosynthetic properties so that we can try and better understand their role in the carbon cycle and their potential response to climate change. Hi, I'm Jennifer Riley. I'm a PhD student at the University of Southampton in the National Oceanography Centre. I'm studying sinking particles in the upper ocean, and these are important because they're part of the global carbon cycle, which um, a lot of people know global warming and climate change is part of the carbon cycle. So looking at particles sinking is important because it helps us to understand how efficient the ocean is at moving carbon from the surface into the deep ocean. So I study how fast the particles sink, what they look like and what's in them. Okay, uh, my name is Edna Tynan. I come from the National Oceanography Centre in Southampton. Basically I'm studying how the oceans are changing with the CO2 levels from the atmosphere get absorbed into the ocean. And I'm seeing more or less how the ocean is changing um, because of that. And I'm looking at the chemistry and also basically it's the chemistry that changes, but that affects the little the life in the water. So I'm also looking at how life is affected by those changes. And you get to work in a freezing cold container on the back of the ship, so not even inside in the laboratories. I mean, you have a good view, but it's, yeah. it's not the most pleasant <laughs> working environment, is it? No, it's actually, well, as you can see, I'm wearing my hat and my scarf and all this. Um, yeah, it's pretty cold. Um, we just have to be out here because we work with radiochemicals, so we cannot be in the labs in the ship, which means we're in a container out here um, on deck. Pretty cold. <laughs> My name is Debbie Brennan and I work at the Scottish Association for Marine Science in Auburn. On the ship I've been looking at the bacteria and where they get the carbon from, so whether there's an association with algae or whether they get it from somewhere else. So we've labelled a simple sugar and a more complex sugar with carbon-14 and we're going to see which one the bacteria prefers, which one it takes up as its carbon source. So, Ray, I think we've got a sense of all the science that's going on. Who pulls it together? Who makes sure that you all talk to each other? Is that your job? Yes, we'll have a post-cruise meeting. We'll all sit around the table. We'll get our initial results out. And as time progresses, we'll, we'll get more and more information and start publishing our research in journals. But really, we then have to compare that with what other expeditions have found, what other information people have found from other ocean regions. And it's a never-ending, ongoing process involving, really, the whole international science community. Ray Leakey from the Scottish Association for Marine Science, thank you very much. And just a reminder, you can find photos and the daily blog from this expedition on the Planet Earth online website. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Audio Boo. From the ice station here at 80 degrees north, this has been the Planet Earth podcast. Thanks for listening.